Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, if you ever get up to Lake Geneva, how many of you have been up to Lake Geneva? Okay, most of you. Uh, Be sure to take the boat tour that cruises around the shoreline and gives you the backstory on all the mansions up there. Now, my favorite story is about Stone Manor. Uh, Stone Manor is the biggest mansion on Lake Geneva. It's got 50 bedrooms and about 40,000 square feet. Can you imagine vacuuming that place? All right. See, it was built back in 1899 by a dude named Otto Young. Otto was a German immigrant, came to the United States penniless, His first job was in New York City selling cigars for $3 a week, $3 a week. He made enough money to move with a new bride to Chicago and open a jewelry store. Now, Chicago had just gone through the Great Fire. This was uh, recently after 1871, and so most of the city had been burned to ash. And, and he started, Otto started using the proceeds, his, uh, you know, the income, the profit from his, his jewelry business to buy up property. And property in what is now the downtown area was selling really, really cheap. Not only because it had been scorched, but, but also because the leaders of the city were talking about removing Chicago from where it had been and moving it further down the lake, a new location. And, and so Otto bought property at bargain basement prices. He had a hunch, he had a hunch that Chicago would end up staying exactly where it was and that it would grow to be a thriving city. And his hunch, as you know, turned out to be correct, which is what made Otto millions of dollars because he now owned all this Chicago property and it afforded him uh, the opportunity to build a great big mansion on Lake Geneva. Well, Otto's story is similar what happened to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah invested in some property that was was initially worthless, but sometime later, its value skyrocketed. So I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Okay, this is a big book, but if you go a little beyond the middle of the book, you'll hit Jeremiah, which is the longest book in the Bible, so you can't miss it. Uh, We encourage you to bring a Bible with you and follow along as we study God's Word. Uh, in fact, we're doing a, we're completing a four-week series of, of Jeremiah uh, today because we want to encourage you to follow our church's daily Bible reading schedule. We hope to make a daily Bible reader out of you because that's how you get to know God. You get to know God's book and you get to know God in the process. So we've got a four-year reading schedule called the Bible Savvy Reading Schedule. You could jump in any time you want. It's currently got us in Jeremiah and in Matthew. And if you you want a copy of the schedule, a spiral-bound hard copy called the Bible Savvy Journal can be picked up at any one of our bookshops on our campuses, or you could just download our app and you'll have the Bible Savvy schedule on your electronic device. Now, here's where we're picking up the Jeremiah story today. Jerusalem... Uh, which was the capital city of southern Israel. Israel, southern, southern uh, kingdom was known as, as Judah. It's been under siege for two years. The, uh, the Babylonians are about to break through the walls, destroy Jerusalem, and carry its citizens off into exile. And all of this is God's punishment for the people's sins, their flagrant sins, and their refusal to honor God as the Lord of their lives. 
Now, Jeremiah has been warning the people for years, punishment is on its way, punishment is on its way, turn back to God, but his warnings had fallen on deaf ears. Jeremiah is not a very popular guy. At this point in time, Jeremiah is actually under house arrest. He's being kept in the outside courtyard of, uh, at, at King Zedekiah's palace. And King Z is particularly honked off at Jeremiah because Jeremiah has been encouraging the people of the city to give up. He said, this is, you know, this is your medicine. Take your medicine. Babylon's God's punishment for, for our sins. So uh, surrender and you know, take what God gives. King Z thought that this was, at, at best, this was demoralizing to the people, and at worst, it was treasonous. So he had Jeremiah arrested. And it's at this point in the story that God makes a very strange request of Jeremiah. God asks Jeremiah to make a long-term investment, to make a long-term investment. And in this regard, Jeremiah serves as a role model for all of us gathered here today or watching on, online, you know, that, that we would be long-term investors and at some point in the future enjoy potential payoffs that are far bigger than those that uh, Otto Young ever experienced or Jeremiah of Jerusalem. So today, three steps to long-term investing, and you get a sense of what I mean by long-term investing as we go. If you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to do so and jot down these three steps so that you could be sure you're becoming a long-term investor. So step number one, obey God's commands. Obey God's commands. Now, if your Bible is open to Jeremiah 32, we're gonna pick it up at verse six. So Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanimal, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. I want you to drop down to the, the last line of verse 8. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanimal and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the, the silver on the scales. Now drop down to verse 14. Skipping around a little bit just to compress the story. Verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Okay, this is God's word. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, Put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. I'm going to stop right here. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Now, what is going on here? Well, Je Jeremiah is asked to buy his cousin Hannibal's property. Now, what, why is cousin Hannibal selling his property? Well, it's, it's probably because of the siege uh, of Jerusalem. But Babylon is at the gate, so to speak, and so the... The city is being systematically starved. Hannibal probably has no money with which to buy food for his family. And so he decides to sell his, his property. So wh why does he go to cousin Jeremiah? Why doesn't he just go to a Remax dealer and put a for sale sign in his front yard? Okay, it's because of an Old Testament law that says family property should be kept in the family. Okay, family property in the family. So 
if you're going through financial difficulty and you have to sell your home, you have to sell your property, you were to go to a relative that you thought could afford to buy it in the hopes that they would buy your property, you would get some money, at some point in the future you'd get back on your feet financially, and then you could buy your property back. It would stay in the family. Okay, so he goes to Jeremiah because he suspects that maybe Jeremiah has got money that he could put toward this property. Now, what is Jeremiah thinking about this deal? He's thinking to himself, really? Buy this property? Like, do you understand that I'm in jail right now and that the king of Judah is breathing down my neck and the Babylonians are about to break through the walls of the city and when they're done with their scorch and burn routine, how much do you think your piece of property is going to be worth? I mean, there was no good reason for Jeremiah to buy this property. None. Well, actually, there was one. God told him to buy it. God t- in fact, there's a, a Bible study tip I've taught you before, and that is whenever you're reading any passage of Scripture, look for repeating words or ideas. Because if God says the same thing several times in the same passage, he's probably trying to get our attention. So go back to the text I just read to you. Look at the opening line of verse 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord. Drop down to the, the last line of verse 8. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, okay, to buy Cousin Hannibal's property. Go down to verse 14. How does it open? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. So why does, why does Jeremiah buy Cousin Hannibal's property even though it looks like a terrible long-term investment? Because God tells him to do so. Now, here's the, the first step in long-term investing. Obey God's commands. Obey God. Sometimes God asks us to do things in in his holy word that are difficult to do. Sometimes these commands require sacrifice on our part. I'm not just talking about financial matters. Anything God asks you to do occasionally will involve sacrifice. Sometimes what God asks us to do in scripture is the exact opposite of what everybody else in our culture is doing. Now, sometimes God's commands don't make sense to us at the time. We, we see it in Scripture and we say, well, you know, that seems lame. Now, sometimes there are a hundred other things that we would rather do or we got going on in our lives. We can't take time to obey this command that God has given us in his word. You know, but if God asks us to do something, friends, it's a good thing. It's a wise investment to do it. Let let, let me give you some examples here. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage today. Okay, you go to your friends. What do your friends say? Your friends say, get out of it. Your your friends say, you deserve to be happy. Find yourself somebody new, somebody who can make you happy. You go to God's word. What does God's word say? Well, if you've been following the Bible Savvy reading schedule, you know the answer to this question because we're going through Matthew and Jeremiah and Matthew 19 that we read this last week. Jesus says, marriage is for keeps. Now, as you go through the Bible, there are only a a few exceptions to this marriage is for keeps rule. Uh, Adultery, abandonment, abuse. But, But otherwise, God's word says, hang in there, work on the marriage. And and if your partner's not willing to tango, then at least work on yourself. 
You know, th this is why at Christ Community Church we have a marriage recovery course, marriage enrichment course uh, called Reengage that we offer at, at, at Care Night because we, want, want, we believe God wants to restore broken marriages. D did you know studies have been done, this is a researched item here, that if a couple labels itself as unhappy, we're unhappily married, but they will stay married, in five years' time, things will change and they'll say they're happily married. Most couples who say they're unhappy today say that if they hang in there and work on it just a little bit, they end up happy. So obeying God's command for marriage looks like a good long-term investment. Okay, what else might God's word command you to do that seems difficult, seems unreasonable right now? I'll bet you can think of something. You know that God wants you to do and you're thinking, oh, this would be so hard. How about, how about this one? Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who've hurt you. You say, yeah, pray. God, make them miserable. Now, I don't think that's the prayer Jesus had in mind, all right? Obey God's commands. You know, are you looking, as you read the Bible daily, which I hope you become a daily Bible reader, are you looking for these directives in Scripture? Are you coming up with personal applications? You don't just read it and close the book. You say, what is it God wants me to do with what I've read? And, and some of you I know are, are thinking, I've tried that and it's really hard. How do you go from text to real life? And if you struggle in that area, I wrote a short, like four or five chapter book called Walk. And you could pick it up at, at, at resource, and it'll help you make applications from what you read. Now, I've got a good friend. Uh, his name is Christopher Yuan. Uh, Christopher and I have been buds for years. And uh, some years ago, uh, Christopher was one of the most successful drug dealers on the East Coast. Uh, he was also majorly into the gay party scene. And he got busted and thrown into jail. And one day as he was walking back to his jail cell, he looked in a trash can and somebody had discarded a Bible. So he fished it out and he began to read it every day and eventually surrendered his life to Christ. Now, the minute Christopher surrendered his life to Jesus, he knew that his drug dealing days were over. But what about his gay lifestyle? So he goes to the prison chaplain and he says, what, what does God say about this? And the prison chaplain says, well, God says homosexuality is fine. And Christopher says, well, you know, this didn't sound right to me. So he went back to the book and he started looking through the book. And he discovered from the opening pages of Genesis, God says that a sexual relationship is to be reserved for a man and a woman. And not just any man and woman, but a man and woman who are committed to each other for life. They're married, a married man and woman. He gets to the New Testament and he finds that Jesus endorses this same pattern. He says, yeah, sexuality, that's what it's, it's a man and it's a woman in a married relationship for life. And Christopher realizes this is going to be really tough to obey. Okay, just because he surrendered to Christ didn't mean that his same-sex attractions went away. But Christopher determined that he was going to obey God. In fact, he would remain single, free of sexual attachments, if that's what it took to walk in holiness to God. And if you read his autobiography, which I would recommend to you, came out a few years ago, Out of a Far Country, Out of a Far Country, great story. Christopher says this is the hardest and the best decision he's ever made, that he's going to obey God and see what happens.
Now, maybe controlling your sexuality is an area in which you have a hard time obeying God. Whether you, like Christopher, you're same-sex attracted, or maybe you're heterosexual and you're, you're dating and it's difficult to say no to a sexual relationship even though you, you, you know what God says on that score. I gotta tell you, friend, this is a long-term investing issue. See, if you insist on doing what feels good to you today, you will forfeit God's reward, what he's got in store for you in the future. Now, more about those rewards as, as we go along. Uh, long-term investing begins with looking for God's directives in Scripture and obeying them, even though this may be difficult to do. Now, for Jeremiah, this obedience was, was a financial matter. God directed him to buy his cousin's property. Certainly not the thing that Jeremiah would typically want to do with his money. You know, money, money is one of those areas in which we're all tempted to do what feels good in the moment instead of obeying God's clear commands about generosity. See, the, the Bible teaches that our generosity begins. This is the minimal starting place the Bible teaches with 10% of our income going back to the Lord's work. You know, your local church and its ministries, feeding the poor, making sure that the good news of Jesus gets spread around the world. This is a long-term investment because the benefits, listen to me, the benefits of giving money away are not immediately apparent, right? Not immediately apparent. This is why we resist giving. We say, well, wait a second, give 10% of my income away every paycheck? How am I gonna pay my bills? Give 10% of, of my income away to the Lord's work, then how can I enroll my kids in all the activities that they want to do from traveling sports to private school to, you know, give away 10% of my income right off the bat? How, how can I pay for the things that make me happy for vacations and new cars and weekend getaways and Bears tickets? And Bears tickets will probably not make you happy these days, all right? Just, you know, just saying. Obeying God with regard to money requires a long-term investing mindset. If, if we insist on living for today and spending our money accordingly, then we will forfeit what God has in store for us in the future. You get it? Good. Obey God's commands. Number two, believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. Promises. Let's go back to verse 32. I want to pick it up at verse 14. Okay, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents. Okay, he has just purchased his cousin's property, and he's got these documents. Both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Here's God's promise. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So God's making Jeremiah a promise. He's saying, Jeremiah, obey me, and here's the promise down the road. And he spells it out. Now, I'm going to sum summarize the second half of Jeremiah 32. It would take too long to read the entire second half of this chapter. But God says, yeah, my punishment's coming. Okay, the Babylonians are going to break through the wall. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to carry citizens off into exile. However, after a period of time, my promise 
is to return the exiles to Jerusalem, to restore the city and the uh, land round about it. And at that time, Jeremiah, your property is going to skyrocket in, in value. See, this was, a, this was a great promise for Israel. It was a great promise for Jeremiah. Drop down to verse 42. I'll read a little bit more of the promise to you. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will also give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you now say, it's a desolate waste without people or animals, for it's been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Now, fields will again be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev. In other words, everywhere, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. This is God's promise, and it's a great one for Israel, uh, by and large, but especially good for Jeremiah, who's just put his money down on property that's uh, it's totally wasted. And God says, no, not wasted. Now, here, here's what's coming down the road. I'm going to restore Israel. And at that time, Jeremiah, your property is going to be extremely valuable. Now, in real estate circles, there, there is a principle called the anticipation principle. Some of you who are realtors, you, you, you know this. The, the anticipation principle says sometimes it's wise to buy property that doesn't seem like it's worth a whole lot at the time because around the corner you see something good is going to happen that's going to cause the value of that property to go up significantly. Maybe you know about an interstate or a shopping mall or something like that that's going to be built in the area. Okay, so Otto Young, the anticipation Principle, he bought all that scorched land in the loop area of Chicago and Chicago rebuilt there and he became a wealthy man. So the anticipation principle, we obey God's commands today, whatever he tells us to do, because we anticipate something. God promises to bless our lives in the future. Now, let, let me say clarify here, that future may not be tomorrow. That future may not be next week. That, that future may not even be in this life, but we can count on the fact that God has something in store for us that's going to be ginormous compared to the investment that he's asking us to make. Okay, back to Jeremiah. I mean, how could Jeremiah possibly believe what God was promising him? See, nothing in his situation suggests that there would be blessing down the road if he would buy his cousin Hannibal's property today. Nothing. I mean, his life is a mess. He's in, he's in jail. Okay, the, the, the king of the country is breathing down his neck. The Babylonians are battering down the walls. What gives him the confidence that God would deliver on his promises? Two habits. Jeremiah practiced two habits that stoked his confidence in God. And if we're going to obey God when God asks us to do difficult things because we believe in his promises that good is coming down the road, 
you know, then we need to practice these two habits so that they'll fuel our confidence in God. Habit number one, and these sound really simple and straightforward and like stuff you've heard before, but mark these down. Habit number one, praise God in prayer. Praise God in prayer. Backtrack, we were at the end of chapter 32, backtrack up to verse 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Barak, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. I prayed. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, we need to remind ourselves of God's greatness when we pray. Do you start your prayers with gimmies? You know, God, give me this. God, I really need that. You know, the pattern in Scripture is to start our prayers with praise. Oh, Lord God, you're the creator of the heavens and the earth. Oh, God, you're the king over everything that lives. Oh, God, you're the shepherd who leads me into green pastures. Oh, God, you're the savior who rescued me from my sins. Oh, God, you're the counselor who gives me wise advice. Oh, God, you're the refuge who protects me from my enemies. You say, well, where did you come up with that list of attributes? Well, that's a handful among the, the more than 250 attributes of God that you'll find in Scripture. In fact, we've put these together in a little pamphlet that we make available free of charge at the information counter. And I would recommend if you don't have one of these, pick one up today, stick it in the front cover of your Bible and use it. Use it to pray these attributes back to God because the more we praise God in prayer, the more confidently we believe that he'll deliver on his promises. Promises given to those who obey his commands. Habit number two. Read. Read about God's mighty acts in the Bible. So as Jeremiah's prayer continues in chapter 32, he begins to recount what he's learned about God and his greatness as he's read the scripture. Now, he's reading scripture. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, so he's reading even older scripture. He's reading the books of Moses, written 800 years before his time. And this is what he says about what he's read, verse 21. God, you brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. Remember the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptian army? See, you gave them this land you had sworn to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. How did Jeremiah know all this? Because he read the book. And, and you could almost feel his confidence growing as he, he gets pumped up as he recounts what he's read about God's mighty acts in the Bible. Get yourself a Bible-savvy reading schedule and begin to read daily about the greatness of your God. You know, long-term investing requires that we really, 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 really believe that God is willing and able to bless our lives as he promised if we'll obey his commands. Now, let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I want to go back to the topic of generosity because the, the Bible repeatedly urges us to be, to be givers starting with the first 10% of our income. And God promises, he promises that givers will be richly rewarded. You say, well, have you ever seen this happen? Have you witnessed God rewarding people who've become generous givers? Absolutely. In fact, I keep a file folder. Every time somebody sends me a letter, a hard copy letter or an email, I make a hard copy out of it, I slip it into that file folder, 
My generosity file, I call it, because it's stories of people who started giving and they're amazed at how God has blessed their lives. And so, sometimes the blessing comes in financial terms. You know, they become a giver and, you know, they get a bonus at work. Or they, 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 they get the scholarship they've been hoping for to get into the school they want to, want to go to. Or, you know, they suddenly get a great deal on a, a used car they desperately need and get a tremendous price. And they trace it back to, oh, it's probably because I've been faithful in my giving. And so, so, now, sometimes, sometimes the reward, the blessing has got nothing to do with money. You know, you, you become a giver. I tell people this all the time. When you become a giver, your spiritual life will skyrocket. Because God says in his word, he's not going to entrust you with spiritual wealth if you can't handle worldly wealth well. So you, you become a giver and suddenly you, you begin to experience the peace and the presence of God in your life like you never have before. Or you start seeing answers to prayer, like more answers than you, you've ever seen in your life. You, you become a giver and you, you start experiencing joy. You give to a big year-end project like last year, supplying freshwater wells in West Africa, and you hear the results and it's like, whoa, that's so cool. Or you give to a ministry like Christ's Community and your friend comes to church with you and discovers a relationship with Jesus and their life has changed and you're oh, wow. So this past week, I just reached into my generosity file knowing I was going to preach this sermon and just pulled a letter out by random, written to me this last year by a young woman who says that a few years back when she was a high school student in our student ministries, uh, she volunteered to go on a go team trip, one of our missions trips. And she said she had no idea how she was gonna pay for this, but she had been instructed to send out support letters to friends and family, and she did. But one day at school, a buddy of hers walked up to her. Now, he had not received any of her letters, but he had an envelope in his hand. And he said, here, this is for you for your go team trip. And she opened it up. There were $500 in that envelope. A high school friend. She said, where did you get this money? And he said, well, I've been saving it. I've been working at McDonald's the last couple of years, and I figured I could spend this on video games or I could give it to you for the Go Team trip, and I decided to invest in you. Now, she's writing me some years later, and the, the reason she's writing me is to say that Go Team trip changed my life. She said, it was catalytic, it was the beginning, it energized my relationship with God that not only transformed me, but now God's using me to impact others' lives. And I'm thinking to myself, how cool for that kid, the dude who gave the 500 bucks. I mean, he could have invested in video games that would now be outdated and sitting on his shelf unused. But instead, he invested in some ministry in the life of a friend, something that changed her life and is now being used to impact others' lives through her. Say, believe God's promises. When God says that there's going to be blessing in your future, if you'll obey him today in whatever area he's calling you to obey, obey because blessings are coming. Blessings are coming. Number three, wait for God's reward. Now, the key word in this third point is wait. Wait, 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 wait. Let's go back to Jeremiah 32 one last time. Let, let me reread verse 14 to you. This is just after Jeremiah has bought his cousin's property. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a jar so they will last a long time. 
so they will last a long time. Okay, God makes this wonderful promise to Jeremiah. If Jeremiah will obey, if he'll obey God's difficult command to buy his cousin Hannibal's worthless property, God promises to return the people to Jerusalem in the future, at which time Jeremiah's property will be of incredible value. So we, we, we call his friends delayed gratification. When you say, I'm going to do something now, even though the gratification for what I'm doing, it's not going to come for a while. And I just want to reemphasize this, this point before we close, because this is how obedience to God often works. You know, we don't get the reward that God promises immediately. We've got to wait for it. We got to, in Jeremiah's case, it was 70 years before the people were allowed to return to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. You say 70 years by that time, Jeremiah would have been too old to enjoy the property he'd bought from Hannibal. Well, in the interest of honest disclosure here, I gotta tell you, it's worse than that. He wasn't just old, he was dead. And so now you're saying, well, so he never, never enjoyed the reward that God had promised. Now, I didn't say that. He didn't enjoy the reward in this life. But I am absolutely certain that Jeremiah is alive and well in the presence of Almighty God today, enjoying rewards for every act of obedience in his earthly life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's not, not ever going to owe you anything? He's going to fully pay up on what he promised. If you walk in obedience to him, you may have to wait, but the blessing's coming. I love to tell the story of a couple of farmers You've probably heard me tell this story before. One farmer's a Christ follower, the, the other one is definitely not. And the Christ follower works really hard six days a week, but the seventh day, and he packs up his family, and they go to church, and they worship God. And his buddy, the, the non-Christian, loves to mock him. He says, why are you wasting your time at church? You could be out working in your fields. You know, this is going to limit your harvest. And the Christ follower says, no, God says to go to church and worship him, to set aside one day a week to be special, and I'm going to obey God. I'm going to trust God to bless my harvest. Well, the end of the season comes. The crops are harvest, harvested. Guess who had the larger harvest? Guess. It's a trick question, which is why some of you aren't answering right now. <laughs> See, the politically correct answer is, well, it had to have been the Christ follower because Pastor Jim is using this to shame us into coming to church, right? So, uh, but you'd be wrong if you guessed that. He was the unbeliever. It was the non-Christian had the bigger harvest. And, and so he drove by the Christ follower's home and he said, what did I tell you? He said, you, know, you wasted your time in church and I've got the bigger harvest. What do you got to say about that? And the Christ follower said, this is not the final harvest. That's the punchline, by the way. <laughs> this is not the final harvest. You know, this is, not, this is not when all the rewards come in. You know, I, I want to encourage you to obey God even though the blessing doesn't come immediately. And sometimes you're going to have to wait for your reward. Delayed gratification. Long-term investors are certain that the reward is coming even if it doesn't come to the final harvest. 
And they're willing to wait because they know that God's got something ginormous in store. Now, I want to encourage you to keep this lesson from Jeremiah today In your thinking, as we approach the end of the year at Christ Community Church and we start casting vision for our our annual year-end gift, are you going to be a long-term investor as you hear about this gift we're, we're collecting for? Now, last year, remember last year's gift? We set out to raise... $500,000, half a million dollars, 70% of which we said is going to go to clean water wells in West Africa. And if you'll recall, we killed it. I mean, we knocked it out of the park. We raised double the amount. We raised a million dollars, which was just just incredible. And it was because... (laughs) It was because many of you decided to be long-term investors. To give money away that you might have immediately been able to use, but you you gave it away for a reward that was going to be down the road. So let me tell you what's coming up this year end, okay? We got just a couple of months to the end of the year. This year, you remember what our big goal is for the year? We got a mega goal. We call it our biggie goal. We did a series on this in September. Three-word biggie goal, love Love your neighbor. That's our biggie goal for the year. So we decided to do our year-end gift, cause it to coincide with our biggie goal. So we've got a year-end gift project ahead called Neighbors in Need. And and it's got two parts to it. Okay, part one is we're going to raise money to purchase food and pack and send that food to starving people around the world through an organization called Feed My Starving Children. We're going to pack, our goal is to pack 750,000 meals across our four campuses. Okay, three quarters of a million meals. We got to pay for that food up front. Now, some of you are already thinking, well, you just said this is for neighbors, but now you're you're saying you're going to ship this to people around the world. Well, remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan? He taught us that, yeah, your neighbor lives right next door to you, but a neighbor is also anybody you meet who's in need. So uh, needy kids in Sierra Leone are your neighbors. Needy kids in Bangladesh are your neighbors. So it is neighbors in need. And there's another facet to this as well. If you've ever worked with Feed My Starving Children, to pack 750,000 meals, we're going to need hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. So this is an invite event for you to bring your neighbors along. So I mean, this is a, this is a natural thing. Uh, last time we did Feed My Starving Children, I invited a bunch of my neighbors, 18 of my neighbors participated. And I'm not saying that's where you you need to set the bar. I'm just saying it works. It's an easy invite. It's because many of your neighbors already know about Feed My Starving Children. They've done it with their company or their Boy Scout troop or their grade school. Okay, so that's one part. You know, half of what we're doing is Feed My Starving Children, 750,000 meals. The second half has to do with our community impact partners. We've chosen six of those partners. Now, we got a a dozen or two. We've chosen six of them who've got really big goals ahead of them. These are Christian organizations that work in our local communities, meeting the needs of the neediest of our neighbors. You know, like Naomi House, uh, it, it's, it's a recovery place for women who have been victims of sex trafficking. You know, or, or, or administer justice. Administer justice offers free legal counsel for people too poor to afford it. Or, or Waterleaf Crisis Pregnancy Center that ministers to uh, women and 
encourages them to save the life of their baby and cares for both the baby and the mom. I mean, those are just several examples. And what we're able to do is gonna depend on the size of our gift between now and December 31st. How many meals we pack with Feed My Starving Children, how many of the goals we're able to accomplish with our community impact partners. So I wanna challenge you today to do some long-term investing. I wanna challenge you today to begin praying today for what God wants you to give. And again, this has to be over and above your regular giving. You can't play the shell game of taking it away from Christ's community to give to these other things or we'd have to close our doors. Okay, so this is over and above. What will God lead you to give? Will it be 50 bucks, 100 bucks? Maybe $500, $1,000, maybe. maybe it'll be $5,000 or $10,000. Some of you have the capacity to give $5,000 or $10,000. What are we going to do? What are we going to see God accomplish? What rewards await us if we'll obey God in this regard? I want you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. You know, God promises to reward your generosity, friends. Could be immediately. Could be sometime in the future. It could be financially, or it could be in some even more significant way. Will you become a giver this Christmas season? Now, in just a moment, we're bowed before God. We're quieting our hearts, getting ready for communion. And communion is just a a wonderful thing to celebrate on the heels of a sermon like this. Because you know who our supreme model is, our role model when it comes to long-term investing? It's Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was asked by God the Father to do something very, very difficult, to, to take the penalty for our sins on the cross, and Jesus obeyed. He laid down his life. Why did he do that? Well, because there was a promise. There was a promise of a tremendous reward. By dying on the cross, Jesus would purchase our salvation. Everyone who surrenders to Christ can be saved from their sins penalty, can be given new life that begins the minute you you surrender to Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You say, joy? What is so joyful about getting nailed to a cross? It's the joy of our salvation. It's the delayed gratification of being able to look down the corridor of time 2,000 years and see you sitting in church at Christ's community as a follower of his, as a person who's been bought with his blood, as a person whose life is being changed from the inside out. Jesus went to the cross as a long-term investor because he, he saw the reward that is you, that's you. Oh, Lord God, when we look at your son Jesus and what he's done, forgive us. Forgive us for our hesitancy, even for a moment, to obey what you command us to do in your holy word. Forgive us, God, for doubting that you will fulfill your promises to, to bless the lives of those who walk in obedience to you. Help us to get after it, God. Help us to read your word with an eye toward what you're directing us to do and then wholeheartedly, with your help, whatever it is, to do it. Confident of the fact, God, that you will owe us nothing. You will constantly bless our lives beyond our wildest dreams. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.